This is a Federal News Network podcast. No doubt about it, the federal government has a big data loss problem and a reputational black eye from the recently discovered cybersecurity attack successes by Russia. A longtime federal cybersecurity executive, most recently at the Homeland Security Department, has a few ideas about what the government might be able to do next. Keith Trippy joins me now. Mr. Trippy, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Good morning. So what did the government do wrong here? I mean, all of these years of cybersecurity policies, laws, directives, executives parading through, I've watched it for 20 years, and it's almost as if they had done nothing, or am I missing something? Let's be clear. We've spent billions on this, and this is our Cyber 9-11. This is the wake-up call. This isn't just a wake-up call for the politicians. This is a wake-up call for CEOs of companies, for federal agencies. We have spent so much money, Tom, and one of the the risk areas that we in the government, when I was there and since I've left, have not focused on is what is the supply chain risk? We've talked about it. There's been a bunch of academics that go away for three weeks and they write a paper, but there aren't any hard and fast rules for what are our, for lack of a better term, what is our cybersecurity doctrine for the United States? What is it? If somebody hits us, whether it's a nation state or a criminal enterprise or just somebody that got lucky that knows how to hack, what is our policy? Is it mutual destruction? Is it same force? Is it domino theory? Is it the strategies that we've used in kinetic conflicts? We don't have that yet. And I think in, in, in a vacuum, you get these sort of testing for what looks like Russia was doing. They test. They see how far they can go. Microsoft had an interesting reaction to the whole thing. They did. And I tell you, what, what, what is fascinating about what they did is I would argue they went further than most companies I've seen in responding to this. Part of it was they got, they got a taste of the medicine, right? They, got a, they, <laughs> they were impacted by it. So they were, uh, I would argue, in, incentivized to take action. So one of the things that they did was they did a bit of a takedown service, right? They went after the domain that was, in theory, talking with some of the servers in these uh, organizations and took it out, took it over, and then was able to get intelligence about who were potentially the Russians, who were they communicating with, meaning what companies did they attack, what did they successfully get access to. So that sort of action is really one of the furthest steps I've seen a company take. And I'll be honest with you, the American in me says, great, go get a Microsoft. The Homeland Security veteran in me says, well, wait a minute, what are the implications if we have a private sector company edging into what some, some most people would think that is a federal government response. So we really need to think about what is our doctrine, what is the roles that a large U.S. corporation can take if they've been attacked. I don't think that's answered yet. So that's what's fascinating about what Microsoft took for actions. Well, shouldn't Homeland Security then have done this and say, all right, we see now where this is coming from, just unload everything we've got on them. And we do have some offensive tools. Everyone knows that. Great question. So, again, you know, we've spent billions. We had someone that, that used to run the, the cyber organization inside DHS just three weeks ago to say it was the most secure election uh, that we've had. At the same time, reports are coming out that this same software that was hacked was potentially used by one of the election software voting machine system companies. So I, I, I don't want to say asleep at the switch. I would want to say, argue that our civilian and military side meet together and figure out what is your response and what is my response. I think we need to pull back U.S. companies from doing a lot of this. And I think whether it's on the military side, if it's overseas, or if it's CONUS, it's in the United States, 
Homeland and FBI need to probably have more of a leadership role to take those actions and maybe take that server over. Why did we need Microsoft to do it? We've spent billions of dollars. We have the Einstein Network, and I'm sure some of your audience, considering who you talk to every day, is aware of what this is. We spent billions. What good did that do us? Nine months this has been going on, and we had a private sector company find the problem. It wasn't the U.S. government. We're speaking with Keith Trippi, former federal IT and cyber executive from Homeland Security. What about the fundamental problem that no matter what billions we've spent and what policies we've had, federal systems are still apparently inherently insecure? That's a great question. So I'd, I'd love to get into that. So a couple of things. In federal contract, part of the problem is a lot of federal agencies look at cyber as what happens at the end of the line. Right before the system goes live, oop, throw some security on there. That is wrong. The concept that the federal government hasn't adopted yet is cyber by design. That's where you embed cyber all the way over from planning and budgeting all the way through the contracts process. So, for example, all of these federal agencies that got whacked, what is in their contracts that says that they can, A, either A, take legal action against this company, or B, assign financial penalties? There isn't. So the federal government signs contracts with all of these software and hardware companies And there's no contractual language that says, should you be sloppy and get hacked and it impacts us, we're able to financially penalize you. And all of the financial costs associated with the cleanup, you're going to pay that. None of our contracts do that. And federal government pays almost, you know, 50 to 100% more than what you typically get in the commercial market. And so we can't figure out a way to add that sort of cyber protection language into our contract. That is one of the first things that I would do, because if you did that and say you added a clause that said, hey, CISA, you offer auditing services. So you have forensics people that can come in and assess your technology. Why are we buying software from in the United States and outside the United States that doesn't require, say, a CISA organization to go in and fully vet the software on a quarterly or at a minimum an annual basis. We don't do that. We don't even require that. We offer guidelines. CISA offers it as a service, if you will, for free. But none of these companies are, A, forced to do it, and two, none of them want to do it because they don't trust the federal government to protect their data, number one, and number two, keep them from being assessed liabilities if they are hacked. You've got these different challenges all happening at the same time, but the federal government's got to step up here. I mean, this is our 9-11 in the world of cyber. They have got to take action. But what you describe is a compliance and penalty approach, and that might be some of it. But what about the design of the federal systems themselves? What's been happening on that front such that they are so easily hackable well, if the supply chain can't hold up? Well, what's interesting about this was, right, this was true... Trojan horse, right? So it was a company that was a company that selling to the government for years was hacked in their supply chain. So the federal government, when they do a patch upgrade or an upgrade to that software, they willingly allow the malicious code into their network because it was inherently trusted because it, if you will, it was a trusted company. So that problem would have been found right away by, say, an Einstein, if you will. But we need to be able to say that when we're running our updates and scans, we've got to scan that. When I say we, the government, it's got to be able to scan all of that software before it gets added to your servers to help identify and look for things like backdoors, which is what it looks like these guys, if it is the Russians, put into the software code that they upgraded. And so we all just willingly upgrade it and don't have the security check as part of that process. I would bet a year from now, every federal agency will have that on all of their software. Because Tom, if you think 
that the Ruskies, if they really did this, if you think that they just said, I'm going to pick some company in Austin, Texas, and I'm going to hope that my strategy works and it's going to get into thousands of agencies and companies. No, they're trying that and probably been successful with other software and hardware companies. We're just all focused on this one because it's the shiny object. But if we think that these companies or these uh, nation state actors just tried one company, no. And you have probably been watching in the course of consulting with different companies since your federal career, looking at the cybersecurity maturity model certification system, which is very, very much in its infancy at this point. Do you think that holds promise for the future? Yeah, I mean, I kind of look at it like this. So when I think of that model, I look at it and say, okay, when the underwriters laboratories came around years ago, no one, when they plug in a lamp to the wall, are they worried that it's going to burn down the house because of that UL stamp on the lamp. That's great. We don't have that inside. We don't have anything close to that. So I think this new model that's been developed is promising, but until it gets fully implemented and ingrained in commercial entities that build software and hardware, fully ingrained into federal agencies, look, we've got people that are in IT that are, you know, they've been in this game a long time and they do business a certain way. And you have the young wave of, of talent coming in that says, well, why do we do it this way? And they're not thinking about cyber. They're a little bit more focused on, on building apps. So what you've got here is kind of a, a, a challenge in the workforce, right? You're, are you really recruiting the right individuals to be building systems and deploying systems in the federal government. So you've got some old graybeards that are used to building it one way and the new whippersnappers that are only focused on building apps as fast as they can. You don't have a culture of cyber DNA yet in the federal workforce. So you can come up with this standard and you can talk about it, but who's implementing? Which CIO is gonna divert funding from pick a mission project and put it into cyber? very hard for them to do. A lot of pressure from senior leadership at an organization that says, you make sure that this new system that supports some regulation gets implemented. Well, it's a trade-off, right? You can't do everything. So when usually things get sacrificed, cyber sometimes is on that chopping block early. And I think that mentality has got to change. And while we have you, since your federal career, you have become an author. I have, I have. I said, hey, you know, I've got a little bit of free time. I'm over here in uh, Indonesia now, so nights and weekends uh, gives me something to do. Um, and I tell you, it was a sort of a thoughtful reflection on over a decade in the federal government, kind of seeing how the way things work. I came up with this concept, and Tom, it's a little out there, right? So the name of the book is called The Forgotten American, but the subtitle is called Prosecuting a RICO Case Against the U.S. Congress. And so the question I ask myself is, are U.S. citizens unwitting co-conspirators be laundering violations by the U.S. Congress? Kind of a big topic, a heady topic. But if you go back 100 years and you go forward over the past 100 years, we have implemented taxation that violates the Constitution. We spend outside the 18 enumerated powers. McConnell and Pelosi have just agreed on yet another $900 billion that are outside the 18 enumerated powers. And then... The backside of that money laundering conversation is how does the money come back in to the politicians? Well, through campaign finance. You and I just watched one of the craziest elections uh, of all time, and more than $14 billion, Tom, was spent on electing a bunch of politicians. Why would people spend $14 billion to elect politicians? 
So this book, it's written as a courtroom drama. It's a fictional drama, and it's fun. There's some comedy in there. But the, the concept that we're trying to make is, or the case that I'm trying to make is, is the Congress performing money laundering and RICO violations against U.S. citizens? And having worked inside the government for 10 years, I saw things that made me ask those questions. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, find the answer to the trial when we read the book. Keith Trippi is former DHS senior cybersecurity executive, now in private consulting. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, and stay safe. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.